you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 129th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm excited to begin our focus on DEIB with Sharon Hurley-Hall. I first became aware of her work on LinkedIn when I read one of her anti-racism newsletters and was blown away. She has such a strong and gentle way of talking about the issues in a way that people who want to educate themselves can hear. I think she calls it auntie energy, firm but kind. I'm definitely a fan and highly recommend her newsletter. Sharon Hurley-Hall is an anti-racism activist, writer, and educator, firmly committed to doing her part to eliminate racism. She is the founder and curator-in-chief of Sharon's Anti-Racism Newsletter. In this twice-weekly online publication, Sharon writes about existing, while Black, in majority white spaces, and amplifies the voices of other anti-racism activists. A writer with more than 25 years experience, Sharon is the author of Exploring Shadism and I'm Tired of Racism. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation to start off our DEIB month. Thanks, Kim. Happy to be here. All right. To begin with, I believe some of our listeners may not know what DEIB stands for. I'd love to have you explain that and maybe talk about the progression because a different initial has been added, much like LGBTQAI. If you could share with us what that stands for and why the progression and what it actually speaks to. Yes, sure, Kim. DEIB stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Belonging. The progression is the recognition that it's more than Diversity is about how diverse is my workforce? How diverse are my circles? Are there people that look different from me? Are there people with different experiences? Equity is more about ensuring that there's some parity in the way that people are treated and that some people are not disadvantaged. Inclusion, in a sense, is about being welcomed to the table. And belonging is the state that we're all aiming for, right? Somebody says, let me see if I can get this right. Equity is being asked to the party. Inclusion is about being asked to dance. And belonging is about being able to choose your own music. (laughs) Oh, nice. Nice. That's one analogy that I've heard. One of the things that troubles me about the inclusion part is that it still suggests that there are gatekeepers deciding who can be in and who can be out, whereas belonging feels more like a right. And I suspect that that is why some of the focus has moved to the idea of belonging as something we all belong. We all belong on this planet. We all belong in all the spaces. And belonging is something that as human beings we have. And so that is something that we should be aiming to get back to. I like that. Another subtlety for me as a female is inclusion might mean that a group of men invite me to the table because they want to look like they have a female. But when I speak, I might as well have a piece of tape on my mouth because they look at me like I make no sense to them and they disregard what I say. I feel like I don't really belong. Yes, you're including me, but you don't really want me here. So it's mm-hmm. about wanting and valuing the difference. Absolutely. 
that's so important. It's not about making up a look of inclusion. It's about true inclusion where you understand that different people who think differently than you bring something important to the table for you to listen to. It's about them being valued. It's about it mattering. Yes. And it's about it mattering to the point where those different voices have input into how we go forward into the future. It's not a checkbox exercise to say, okay, we've got a black person, we've got a this person. You can think about it. When I watch television programs, particularly in England, there's a rainbow of actors that appear in there. But then you have to think about what are the roles that those actors play? Are they getting the substantial roles or are they just there in the background as somebody that walks on for two seconds, right? The difference between inclusion and belonging. And are they playing an authentic role or are they playing some ridiculous parody of what the writers, the white writers and producers think that particular group acts like? Oh, my gosh. Representation is not just about being seen in the space. It is about that authenticity. If you're talking about media, you want the representation to be at the level of the people that are making the decisions. Similarly, in companies, you just can't have the same old people making all the decisions and making all the rules because then how is anything going to change? It won't unless you can reach the hearts and minds of those making decisions, which is not an easy task. No. Okay, so your bio mentions that you wrote content for DEIB as well as Jedi. I'd never heard about Jedi except in Star Wars. So I had to do some Googling and investigate what the heck is Jedi. And after I got through all the Star Wars pieces, I learned about Jedi. Could you tell us what that actually means? Yes, sure, Kim. So that adds the justice component justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. Different people will tell you it's about different things. Some of it is about making up for past inequities. Some of it is about the way people are treated, whether they're treated fairly, whether they're treated equitably. You could say that some of these things overlap. There was a really interesting discussion on LinkedIn recently about whether justice was really part of DEI or not. My view is that you do have to think about that justice component. You do need to think about what does creating a more equal world look like? And how can you eliminate the injustices and inequities that have led us to the point that we are at now? Yeah, that's super important too. Do you have a personal preference between DEIB and JEDI? And if so, why? I tend to focus a lot on the equity and belonging pieces. So I suppose if I had to choose, I would go for DEIB because I think the belonging bit is really, really important. One of the new things that I'll talk about later is a new venture I'm involved in, which aims to create a more equal world. So it's all about belonging and it's all about equity as a path to equality, which jives very well with my own values. Beautiful. Thank you. I know that a lot of people, especially people who look like me, like to say, I'm not a racist. In the field of DEIB, we've moved away from declaring that you're not a racist to talking about standing for anti-racism. Can you talk about the difference and what exactly anti-racism means to you? Absolutely. The difference is that declaring that you're not racist is passive and declaring that you're an anti-racist is active. Being an anti-racist doesn't mean that you get everything right because we make mistakes on this journey. 
right? Oh, you're but not it kidding. Does mean that you have, <laughs> it does mean that you have declared that fighting racism is what matters to you. So for me, it is important to use the gifts that you have to fight racism and create a better world. And that's what I do through my newsletter. I'm a writer. I've been a writer for a long time. Writing is one of the things I do best. So it seems to me that that is one of the ways that I can fight racism by helping to educate and enlighten others. I'm doing this in a number of ways, which we may get to later. But anti-racism is definitely about taking a stance and taking action. It's not a posture. It is active. If it's not active, then you're not really anti-racist. Not racist isn't good enough. Good. That makes good sense to me. What are some of the terms used in anti-racism that you'd like people to think more about? I hear a lot about how PC evolves and changes and you can't possibly keep up with it. It's true. You can't keep up with it if you're not focused on it and if you're not paying attention. You could tell us now, a year from now, it might be different, but I want to hear right now, what are some of the terms used in anti-racism that you'd like people to think about more? One of my pet peeves is some of the alphabet soup that we use to describe different groups. Like in the UK, they use BAME, which is Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. In the US, there's BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color. I always say, say what you mean. Because those terms, while on the one hand, they give you a useful shorthand, they also mask the individual identities and experiences. Different people within those groups have different experiences. For me, I'm a Black woman. You can call me Black. Another term that I have really come to like is global majority which recognizes that people who are not white are the majority of the population on the planet. That term was coined by Rosemary Stevens Campbell. I think that is a great term. I love that. Yeah. I recently started working for Diverse Leaders Group as head of anti-racism there. And one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to is the language we use in trying not to do additional harm and also trying to say what we mean. Eliminating those acronyms is part of it. Thinking about language like minorities, that gives a completely skewed idea of where people who look like me fit in the global scheme of things. So we talk about deliberately disadvantaged people and deliberate disadvantage can be imposed by individuals and also by systems. Those are just a couple of examples. I know I've been guilty of using minority and majority, so that'll be new information for me and I'll definitely keep that in mind. So thank you. I learn so much from you all the time. Reading your newsletters and this conversation is no exception to that. The forms that we have to fill out, where we have to check the box, where we're supposed to fit. I get so frustrated and even borderline angry when Black people are considered a different race than white people. I don't know if that's something you talk about in anti-racism, but I have this shirt that I wear that says there's one race, darn it, the human race. It's not about Black people being a different race. What do you well, what are your thoughts about that? First of all, the whole concept of race is invented. Right. Right? It's invented. It is not a real thing. 
we are all human beings. Right. The idea of race was come up was invented by white people in order to justify colonialism, genocide, enslavement, capitalism, and all the things. It's a very harmful fiction. It's a very, very harmful fiction. Where we are now is that this is a term that we use to talk about this. And very few people actually think to question whether that makes any sense at all. In terms of checking boxes on forms, that's always really interesting. As a black woman, I always want to know, what are you planning to do with that information? Why does it matter? It's going to come back to bite me. Why does it matter? And then even then, do I see myself represented? Because if you started to think about all the identities, that list of boxes would be very, very long, wouldn't it? So I don't know if I have any particular comment on the boxes themselves. Sometimes I don't see myself in them. Sometimes I choose not to answer, depending on how I'm feeling on a particular day. I would like to see at some point more questioning of the whole idea of race that is used as the groundwork and the foundation for racism. I would join you on that for sure. How important is it to use the right language when talking about racism? I think it's crucial. We need to be aware that language carries weight. Language enables us to be precise. I'm a writer, so I'm a words person. I am very intentional in my use of language. When we say global majority as opposed to minority, when we say that white privilege is an unearned advantage, when we break things down and call them what they are, then it is much easier for us to interrogate some of the things that we have taken for granted and to begin to avoid some of the harm that has been imposed on different groups of people over the centuries. For example, I tend, where possible, to talk about enslavement and people who have been enslaved rather than slaves, because that makes the very clear point that it is something that was unwillingly imposed on people. So, yes, be precise and be intentional in using language in both anti-racism and DEI. As a person who talks in DEI spaces, I have put my foot in my mouth more times than I could tell you. I can't even explain why. I mean, things come out of my mouth that I don't even know are offensive. And I thank God for the people that I've surrounded myself with who will gently tell me, you know, you might not want to say that anymore. And they'll share with me why. I've learned a lot. And I also, before I even open my mouth to an audience, I ask for forgiveness ahead of time and say, it takes a lot of courage for white people to step into the arena of DEIB because we have been raised in a system that was designed to be racist. So we have some of that in us, whether or not we want it there. And it creeps out at some of the craziest times. I can tell you, I have a neighbor who I really like. His name is Wayne, and he's a great guy, happens to be Black. And a phrase that happened in my house a lot was an example. Well, your mother's been slaving over that hot stove all day. The least you can do is eat what she fixed. For me, that never associated with Black people at all. And Mm -hmm. so I'm leaving my house and Wayne is outside over barbecue. And I said to him, oh my gosh, you're slaving over that barbecue. And then as soon as I said that, I wanted to suck it back into my mouth. But of course you can't. Once it's said, it's said. And I, I said, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I really meant nothing offensive by that. It's just an old phrase that I was raised with. 
Another phrase I was raised with was Jew them down. I never knew that had anything to do with Jewish people. I just thought it meant to bargain. Thank God I have people in my life who will point out these things to me because I'm not perfect at this by any means. I'm in the field. And I wonder about other people like me who aren't in the field who might be afraid to have racism conversations because of saying the wrong thing. You've said a couple of things there that are really interesting. First of all, we are all raised in a white supremacist culture. I include myself in this as someone who grew up in a post-colonial country in the Caribbean. The norms were still set with the idea that whiteness was the be-all and end-all. There is a song from someone called Guante that basically says white supremacy is the water, not the shark. So we're all over here looking for the shark of racism a little name calling, whatever it happens to be, ignoring that we're swimming in this water, that we're all raised with this idea, and that there are a lot of things that we take for granted that are actually reinforcing that notion. The second thing is that you have to accept that you're going to make mistakes, but that's not a reason not to fight racism. If everybody steps back because they're afraid of getting it wrong, we're not going to get anywhere. And the third thing is the discomfort that white people may feel with the idea of tackling racism in their circles or interrogating their own ingrained racism is nothing compared to the actual experience of racism that Black people have have had. There's nothing compared to the history of systemic racism, of deliberate disadvantage that has affected Black people in America, in the Caribbean, in Britain, in other places, in anywhere that was colonized. Nothing compared to it. So I think it's important to put things into perspective, right? That discomfort is not the same thing as something that is a safety issue, Black people. Such a great point and well taken. We talk about white guilt and people Mm -hmm. feel that white guilt, but we need to feel that white guilt and then we need to do something about it, but not turn the conversation into a conversation about white guilt. It's not about us. We need to deal with those feelings and be able to support the goal of creating an equitable society for everyone. So thank you for that reminder. Absolutely. It often happens that you start to have these conversations and then somebody starts crying, usually a white woman. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it becomes about stopping them from feeling bad rather than dealing with what we're supposed to be dealing with. One of the things that we also talk about is the idea of responsibility. Okay, no, you did not personally enslave anybody but you are benefiting from the system that enslaved my ancestors, right? You're still benefiting from that by virtue of the color of your skin. And one of the reasons, going circling back to language, a lot of people get really uptight about this phrase, white privilege, right? Because they say, well, I'm not rich. I don't have money. Where are my privileges? But what you have to think about is that that skin buys you an advantage, even if you have no money, while this skin buys me a disadvantage, even if I have a lot of money. (laughs) 
That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. I had this conversation with my oldest son and we talked about the responsibility piece and what he struggles with when we talked about systemic racism. And he has a hard time leaning into the idea that there is, in fact, systemic racism because he said, mom, who created that? And I said, white people. And he said, more specifically, and I said, well, plantation owners, white men. And he said, yeah. And what am I? Well, you're a white man. And he said, so if I admit that there's systemic racism, then I have to take responsibility for that. And I didn't do it. We talked about the difference between responsible and response able. You're not responsible for a system, but you are response able to be able to do something to dismantle that system if you're willing to. I think that that's an important distinction because I think a lot of white men, I'm speaking for white men now, I have no business doing that, but I'll I'll talk about my son. I think about fight this idea of systemic racism because of the responsibility and they don't want to take that responsibility. But instead, if they could think about responsibility, they have the ability to respond The way that the education system works, it does not give people in general and white people in particular a good sense of where the generational responsibility lies and where the benefits are. But when you look at the way that the system has been set up, so that if your skin is a certain color, certain things are more available to you, you know, whether that's education, whether that's finance, whether that's housing, whatever it happens to be. And if your skin is a different color, then you get more likely to be stopped. You get more likely to be imprisoned. There's a big chasm in how white people and black people experience the world generally. And even if you are not particularly well off, I come back to this, right? You're still benefiting from a system that is set up to favor people that look like you. All things being equal, a poor white person and a poor black person go into the same place looking for the same thing. And the poor white person is more likely to get it than the poor black person. Yeah. This is not a surprise. This is a fact. Well documented. Yes. Yes. Yep. Also well documented is that even the people that are black that have reached a certain level get a lot of, they experience a lot of racism. I can't remember who it was a few months ago. I think I published a story about a black producer or something who was nearly arrested for going into the bank for trying to withdraw his own money. That wouldn't have happened to a white guy. It just wouldn't. We also need to be not disingenuous about the reality. Right. We have to accept that reality as hard as it is to realize that your ancestors have led you to the point where you're still benefiting from the system and other people are still disadvantaged. That is a reality that we have to face if we're going to move forward. Absolutely. 100%. I loved your article that you put out there. It was a curated list of articles to read. I'm wondering what advice you have for people who are committed to being anti-racist to educate themselves, because so often we want other people to educate us, but there's so many resources out there and it kind of speaks to your title. You're tired. People are tired of educating white people about racism. How can we learn ourselves? How can we direct our own learning journey? Google is always a good start because there are tons of people out there. I would say that if you really want to learn about racism, you need to go to the people with lived experience of racism. 
I have another pet peeve, which is people that don't look like me profiting off anti-racism work, while people who do look like me are not on the bestseller lists when they have very good books out. Mm. I'm not talking about myself here, <laughs> right? I think that there are so many people. A really good starting point is a book that I reviewed in the newsletter, which is Isabel Wilkerson's Cast, an excellent book that compares how how whiteness and skin color and caste operate, making the comparison between Nazi Germany, the US and India. Excellent book. There are tons and tons of people on LinkedIn offering great education. I have to say that this may not always be in a voice that you find palatable, but those are some of the voices that you most need to hear, probably. Elizabeth Leiber has the Black History and Culture Academy, which is a great place to learn about all the history you weren't taught. My newsletter, which is just lived experience. But there are loads and loads of people writing about this. Widen your circle. Don't just talk to other white people about racism. Go out and learn from some Black people, some Brown people, some Indigenous people, some Latina people, some Asian people, some South Asian people, some Arab people. Learn from all those people that are out there. Don't stay in your little white bubble. You have to leave your right? comfort zone to and learn anything. You have to leave your comfort zone. If you stay in your comfort zone, you're not going to learn. You're not going to progress. Yeah. Also, compensate people for the education they're giving you. Take a subscription to the Black History and Culture Academy. Buy people's books. Tip them. Join their Patreon communities. There are so many people out there giving an education that you're not going to get if you go to the same old places. Those are just a few starting points. Excellent. Thank you. I was going to add, if I may, I'm going to add a plug for um, Diversely Group that I've just started working at because we are focused on equality and developing an educational program to help people lead the way to equality. And so that's something that we're putting together now, and we'll be launching the first bit of it in October so that people can get a free taster of what it's going to be about. This is done by myself and the CEO, Leah Jopi Ford, who is a brown woman. And so it's not the same kind of thing that you're going to get from someone who has no lived experience. I'm not saying lived experience is everything, but I am saying that I have an MA in media and culture. I can talk about it as an academic exercise, but I don't because this is also my life. And you need to get that level of reality if you're really going to learn and progress. So you can go to diverseleadersgroup.com and you can check out what we're doing there. And I'll probably be talking about it in the newsletter once it launches as well. Okay, terrific. I hate to say this, but we are coming up to the end of our time. And before we close, I just want to know if there's anything you might want to add that we haven't already talked about. Yeah, I think it's so important to have opportunities like this for us to come together and discuss real issues so that we can learn and grow together. It's going to take all of us, going to take all of us to fight racism and remake the world in a more equitable fashion. That's what I want to say. So anybody who's listening, I hope that you'll be inspired to be an active anti-racist and to get out there and do your part in whatever way you can. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to tell our audience about? Thanks, Kim. I'm just about to release my book, I'm Tired of Racism, in hardcover. It will be out soon. 
and is already available for pre-order. It's a collection of some of the early essays from my newsletter, plus a few pieces that have never been published before as a little reward to those who choose to buy it. It's available on Amazon and the ebook is available on other stores as well. And I'm very excited about that because I think it gives people another way into the work and the chance to hear some experiences. And one of the things I haven't said is that my goal with the newsletter is to share global experiences. I grew up in the Caribbean. I lived in England for 15 years. I visited the States many times. I lived in France. And I've experienced racism everywhere that I have been. I try to bring that perspective that shows that this is one system of racism that operates in slightly different ways, but it's something that we can undermine and undo. And as you alluded to, I also, because it's not just about me, we're not a monolith, want to make space for sharing other voices through the curations and through the interview features. So I'm excited to have these two ways to bring that work to people and hope that they can learn and be inspired to do their part. Excellent. So if people want to sign up for your newsletter or if they want to reach you for further information, how do they do that? The newsletter is available on antiracismnewsletter.com. My website is sharonhh.com and I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. Terrific. Thank you so much. I'll make sure that goes in the show notes in case you didn't catch that. I really really appreciate you joining us today, Sharon. You are a true Jedi and a bright, beautiful voice in the field of DEIB. Even though you're tired, please don't ever stop. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. It's been my pleasure, Sharon. It's mutual. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Nona Lee, a woman who gave up her career with the Arizona Diamondbacks to enter the field of DEIB and found her new company, Truth DEI. And guess who her first client was? The Diamondbacks. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.